So that movie is over 80 years old. You should have seen this movie by now. <laughs> this movie is older than most of us in this room. You know who you are. For his second animated motion picture, Walt Disney in 1940 adapted this popular Italian fairy tale that follows the journey of a wooden puppet named Good. He sets out on this journey to have the right to become a real boy. I'm assuming you all know the story because, again, this movie is over 80 years old and you should have seen this movie by now. One night, a, uh, this old poor carpenter named Geppetto sees this falling star and, as the titular song implies, when you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you, Right? Or at least that's what Walt, Walt Disney would want us to believe. Geppetto wishes that the puppet he just finished could come to life and be this real boy. And as luck would have it, that night Geppetto's wish was granted by this supernatural act. And that lifeless wooden marionette loses his strings and begins to walk and talk just like a boy. But we discover that despite being animated, Pinocchio ain't a real boy just yet. Just because he has no strings on me doesn't mean he isn't still a puppet. Because Pinocchio's got work to do if he's gonna get to the promised land, which is being a real boy. And it's entirely up to him whether or not he becomes a real boy. And based on his actions and his decisions and choices, the things that he decides to do in the rest of the movie, spoiler alert, it's this quest to fulfill Geppetto's wish. And with his trusty, conscious Jiminy Cricket on his shoulder, Pinocchio is going to try to be brave and truthful and unselfish and become what his maker desperately wished him to be, which is a real boy. Last week, for those of that you were here, I introduced this idea that Jesus' resurrection, that on Easter, Jesus was coming back to the garden and starting over. 
that I don't think there's a coincidence that John has Jesus' resurrection in his gospel in a garden echoing the opening chapters of Genesis. That Jesus' resurrection in a garden was the first fruits of a second creation or what the Apostle Paul will call a new creation. And I propose to you that Jesus, like a gardener, has rolled up his sleeves and is moving and working right now, resurrecting and recreating all things and making all things new today, that the seeds of new creation are being sown and fertilized and watered and cultivated and grown by the gardener, now in the light of Easter, all around us and even inside us. And what this means, at least as I said, or at least I tried to say it last week, is that whenever you and I engage and participate and cooperate and lean into what the gardener is doing, we are taking part in God's second creation that is happening right now. I said that I believe God is presently right now making us, you and I, new creatures. These new creations, God is wanting to make us human again. That God is restoring and reminding us what it means to be fully human, made in his image and likeness, and fully alive, just like we were in the garden. Do you remember what I talked about last week? Even if you don't, just nod and pretend that you do. So to borrow from this imagery from Pinocchio for just a second, God's greatest wish for you and I is to be real again. He wants more than anything for us to be real boys and girls just like we were before, not lifeless wooden creatures that he has crafted expertly, but an animated and free, real people who flourish and live in community with him. Are you tracking along with me this morning? And so at Easter, God did a supernatural act. God rose from the dead in a demonstration of his supreme power by which now is animating the lifeless husks of our former selves. But I'll add this this morning. He's releasing us from the shackles of sin so that we can be brought into ourselves and inhabit a new self. These shackles of sin that imprisoned us and kept us from being fully human, Jesus has freed us from. And it's by this act of God that Jesus has cut our strings, so to speak, so that we're no longer marionettes and puppets to the persuasion of the evil one or our old sin nature, but he has breathed new life in us and is making us free and alive. So perhaps the good news of Easter could be summed up in what Pinocchio just sang. I had strings, but now I'm free. There are no strings rings on me. If that's not religious enough for you, I'll try this one. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. But my question is, how does God do that? (laughs) How do we become a real boy? How do we become real again? We've been saved. We've had Easter. We've been resurrected. And by a gracious act of God, I might add. But I don't know about you. I don't know if I've arrived at being real yet. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Ever since I got saved, I've been searching for how to become real, to taste it, to be fully alive, just as God wants me to be, to be fully human again. But I don't know about you, but something keeps me from being real. And as a result, I get stuck, or at least I sometimes do, somewhere in between being a puppet and being a real boy. And I wind up believing that being this wooden puppet and not a real boy, that's the normative Christian experience. But when I read the Bible, I don't think that is. That's not freedom. I was listening to this really great preacher I always listened to the other day. And he observed that so many Christians who get saved, he says they're saved, but they're never converted. He was saying that because for them the road to conversion was always giving something up rather than receiving something better, they're like Peter who comes to Jesus saying, we've given up everything to follow you, but listen to how Jesus replies. He says, given up, more like traded in. You're traded in for an upgrade, but you're so focused on what you've given up that you can't even see what you've gotten in return. And friends, I think folks get stuck because they can't even imagine a life better than the one they have. And this got me thinking that I think that there are a lot of Christians who are saved. There's a lot of Christians that aren't going to hell, but they're not free. Are you tracking with me? I know I'm going really deep, really fast. Because unlike Pinocchio, we were never told what to do to become a real boy. We didn't have Jiminy Cricket on our shoulder telling us what to do. It was never explained to us what comes after we get saved. Let me put it another way. We never were told what comes after salvation. It was never communicated well what comes next when we come to faith in Jesus. It was left ambiguous and undeveloped, and the difference or the growth between being a puppet on strings and a real boy starts to get blurred. Because for some one reason or another, I think many of us were left in the lurch on what it means to become a Christian. We are a Christian. We are Christianed as a Christian usually at our baptism, or after we said a prayer, or after we made a confession of faith, we were named a Christian, but we didn't become a Christian. Nothing changed. We were still the same old selves. We were still trapped to the strings because we thought that maybe that would magically happen overnight or after we dipped into into the pool. But when I read scripture, I see that there's a process There's a process that's involved that involves our participation and our cooperation that entails all of our decisions and choices that now feed into us becoming alive again. So I think to be truly free, we have to somehow make it to the promised land. Too often, the power of resurrection, the gospel at Easter, I think it remains for many of us, this dormant thing Nothing but this cute little pipe dream, or maybe it's just a worthy goal, but it's an impossible reality. A reality many of us will believe that we look forward to one day in heaven as opposed to believing how the Bible talks about it, which happens on earth as it is in heaven. And I think this is why over the course of my life, I've encountered too many Christians who aren't free. They're alive, but they're not fully alive. They're not real they're either usually somberly disappointed, 
because things just didn't work out like they thought it would. They don't believe that what they were sold is, is, is an inferior product, but they believe that it's defective. And, and this new life just didn't pan out like they imagined it would be. And so what happens is either they eject, disenchanted and frustrated and looking somewhere else to become real, or they just gradually become numb altogether, dangling from their strings, believing in a short-circuited, cheap kind of freedom. I'd like to talk to those people this morning, and maybe that's you this morning. I'm talking to myself, to be quite honest, because it took me a while, but I think the cure, friends, is found in a place you'd least suspect it. I think it's found in the wilderness. In the book of Exodus, we get to this epic story of God coming to rescue his people And it serves actually as the paradigm to understand how God deals with his people, who he is, the kind of person that he is. And as it gets recycled and echoed throughout the rest of scripture, we get to know God more. You probably know this story. I probably don't need to repeat it. But Yahweh, the Lord, he appears to this guy named Moses. And he tells them he's devising a plan to save his people. His people have been suffering as as slaves in a place called Egypt under the tyrant of an evil pharaoh. And God is not blind or oblivious to their present sufferings. In fact, he hears the cries and prayers of the people, and they've reached his ears. And this has stirred the Lord of the action, he says. So I've come to rescue them from the power of the Egyptian, God tells Moses. And you're going to help me. So I'm going to liberate them from bondage, to set them free from captivity, and I'm going to personally lead them to a fertile and spacious place, a vibrant, lush place, paradise on earth, a land filled with milk and honey. And after some convincing, Moses reluctantly agrees to be the liaison or mediator between God and the people. God has Moses go, as you know, before Pharaoh is part of his responsibilities. And and he goes to Pharaoh, and of course you know Yahweh's very simple message, let my people go. Pharaoh objects to this. He doesn't know who Yahweh is. He's never heard of him. And instead of heeding Yahweh's delegates, Pharaoh believes that they're distracting the people from their work and making them lazy. He's filling their heads with this nonsensical daydreams and getting them off task. And so Pharaoh tells them, just go back to work. Get my people back to work in those brickyards. And then Pharaoh, who really just wants to twist the knife and to just really drive home what he's trying to say, is don't just supply them with any straw for them to make bricks. Make the people get their own straw, but don't reduce the quota. And all of this just compounds on top of one another. The people come to Moses and they're frustrated and they say, you did this to us. We were just fine in the system and we were content with the status quo. It was working for us until you started fraternizing and preaching and fantasizing about something more. Moses runs the God. And he says, if this is what, is this all part of the plan? Is this what you really wanted for your people? Why did you send me? Even since I showed up to be the spokesman to Pharaoh, just like you asked, and I was reluctant to do, I remind you, he has done nothing but grief and suffering on your people. You have not rescued us at all. But in this beautiful picture, when Yahweh sees he's about to lose Moses, God says to him, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. 
that the gloves are coming off and that with my mighty hand, I will free my people. I will redeem my people. I will adopt my people and I will take them as my own and they will know the Lord their God. And I will lead my people into a land that I promised them and I will place them there on an oath that I will make, on my covenant. And when all is said and done, Pharaoh won't just tell you to go, he'll beg for you to leave. And this is where it gets exciting in Exodus. You know this part, the part we're all familiar with when God unleashes terror on the Egyptians in a series of strikes or plagues. There's nine plus one, and Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he calls these strikes acts of decreation. That if creation is about giving life, decreation is the opposite. And God is capable of these acts of decreation from time to time when he sees fit. And sometimes God unleashes his acts of decreation to demonstrate and show his seriousness when those who violate or corrupt his good creation. One after another, each crescendoing into the next one, intensifying as they go, Nile turning to blood, frogs and gnats, things culminating to a point to where at the end of the first three, Pharaoh's advisors and priests, they go to him saying, this is the finger of God. But of course, Pharaoh won't listen. Things ratchet up even more and begin to shake the very foundations of Pharaoh's system. Swarming insects and animals getting sick and people contracting painful boils. And by the end of the next triad of strikes, plague seven, eight, and nine, the entire Egyptian economy has collapsed. And Pharaoh's power has been easily crushed. And if Egypt had gods, they've been dispatched and defeated. And things have gotten so bad that Pharaoh's priests and advisors are now pleading to him, don't you realize that Egypt lies in ruins? It's over, man. Why don't you just let these people go? But Pharaoh doubles down, and he still won't let them go. And it'll take one more strike, one more act of God that strikes at Pharaoh personally to get him to change his mind, the killing of the firstborn. Pharaoh has believed to be untouchable. He's an incarnate God in the eyes of the Egyptians, but yet this God-man is not immune to Yahweh's strikes. And when Pharaoh's heir is taken away, he finally comes and he orders Moses to get out and leave my people. Go and worship your God as you've requested. When we read the Exodus story, this is supposed to be the moment that Israel is set free. But if you keep reading Exodus, you'll discover that the people aren't free. Not even close. Because even after all the miraculous things God did to save them and to liberate the Israelites from the strings of the puppet master Pharaoh and give them new life outside Egypt, even after their own Easter, they're still not free. Because if you go back and start reading after these plagues and after all the signs that God has done for them, anytime trouble comes up, the people will grumble and complain. And you know what they say? Why don't we go back to Egypt? 
They would prefer to go back to slavery, to undo everything God has done for them, than risk taking another step and living in freedom. And for those of us that have been born in this country with the idea of freedom grafted into our DNA, we can't comprehend why they don't want freedom. But maybe it's because we don't know what freedom actually is. Not long after the people have exited or exodus out of Egypt, they find themselves in the wilderness at a dead end, boxed in by the Red Sea, and they cry out to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. If you reread Exodus, you'll see they never suggest ditching Yahweh and going to the promised land by themselves. They always want to go back. I think it's because even though they might be physically out of Egypt, Egypt isn't out of them. That they're still not free. That they're Egyptian Israelites, not Yahweh's Israelites. Egypt is as much of a place as it is a state of mind. It's a set of core beliefs, and for 430 years, generation after generation, for as long as any of them can remember, they have lived in the system, in Pharaoh's economy, and adopted Egypt's value system. That's all they know. It's all they're comfortable with. The culture and the ideology of slavery. They know how the world runs and operates according to the Egyptians' way of thinking, not to God's. And they live in the shadow of Egypt's pantheon for so long. They live side by side in the same neighborhood as other gods. Egypt is all Israel knows. Life and slavery is all they're familiar with, and the ghosts of Pharaoh, as I've heard it called, will stalk them and haunt them and tempt them and seduce them every step of the way as they go outside Egypt, especially when the future looks bleak, when their children's stomachs rumble, when their throats are dry from thirst, when the enemy nations threaten them. To be truly free, God has to exercise the demons or the ghosts of Pharaoh. God will do that in this place called the wilderness. In the domain of the unknowns and the uncertainties, in the desert, not the promised land, not the land filled with milk and honey, in the wilderness, a place of God-forsakenness, a place where demons call home and where the familiar resources are scarce, where lifelessness seems to be the only order of the day. How could God think this is a good idea? But Exodus says God himself, not an angel, not some supernatural creature, but God himself personally in the presence of a form of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. God himself has chosen their route to the promised land and he will lead them down this longer road through the wilderness. God in his infinite wisdom is taking a more time-consuming, inconvenient route through the lifeless wilderness, risking Israel's frequent groanings and rebellious tendencies, I think, to form and shape his people into who he wants them to be, to set them free. Because only with God is it possible to create a people in the middle of nothingness, in the middle of a barren wilderness, in the middle of the desert. Somehow in the wilderness, it becomes the sanctuary of sanctification for God's people. 
Go back and reread the latter half of Exodus this week. The wilderness becomes this arena where God could purge Israel of Egypt, where he's wrestling with them every step of the way to truly set them free. And the movements and the brushes with the valley of the shadow of death where Israel would be tested and tried and freedom will break in. Only God can make something grow and blossom in the wilderness. The exodus of Egypt is just all of God warming up for what he's truly about to do because it's not enough to get them out of Egypt. He's got to get Egypt out of them. And in the wilderness, God will work through Israel's feelings of abandonment and helplessness, through the pains as they, might, as they feel, through their acts of rebellion, through their puberty-like growth spurts of maturity, and through their triumphs and failures, and through their regular petitions to him for help all in service of helping them know who they are. Only a true heavenly father would be so patient and loving. He's doing it to set them free, to give them a new way of living, to make them set apart, or in other words, holy. Israel's time in the wilderness will make them holy as God is holy. God couldn't do that in Egypt, and he won't wait to the promised land. Freedom is too valuable, and it's going to come in the wilderness. This is what life after salvation, I believe, God envisioned for Israel, and I think this is the same for you and me. And so as I see it, salvation happens in Egypt, sanctification happens in the desert, and consummation happens in the promised land. I don't usually like to do this, but I wanted to set up our next few weeks or several weeks even, of conversations that I want to have with you about the latter half of Exodus. Because I think there are some of us that just want to be free. And I want to look at these stories of Israel where they take this longer route through the wilderness and look through their experiences and encounters with God through the lens of the wilderness to see what God is doing to set them free and make them new creatures again. I think they held the mystery or the riddles to how God will make you and I new creatures to make us real again. God in the wilderness will make us real again if we want to, if we are willing to follow him into the wilderness, if we truly want to be free, if we truly want to be alive, to be real, a real boy and a real girl and not a wooden puppet. We have to journey with God into the wilderness and let him remove Egypt from us. I think there are experiences and things that God can't teach us any other place but there, as difficult as it is. Or in other words, we need to experience the sanctification that comes from the wilderness. Walter Brueggemann says it this way. He says, the departure from Egypt is not the end, but only the beginning of the long struggle for freedom and well-being. A struggle for the identity and destiny of God's beloved community apart from the life-robbing, life-denying definitions of Egypt. Following the dangerous, demanding life Yahweh leads requires continual, fresh renewal and resolve and reinforcement. Israel is addicted to the order and oppression and regular food supply of the empire, and Yahweh's leadership is aimed exactly against that death-dealing addiction. Every breaking of that addiction is like departing the reassuring structures of Egypt. This text as difficult as it is, and the temptation to return is great, but if we follow Yahweh, he will make it as palatable as possible. Around a decade after Walt Disney made Pinocchio, C.S. Lewis wrote a novel 
that is a sequel to his popular children's story. It's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lucy and Edmund and their annoying cousin Eustace inadvertently stumble back into the world of Narnia via a painting on the wall. And they, they land in the ocean are rescued by a vessel called the Dawn Treader. During their adventures aboard the Dawn Treader, as they're traveling with the likes of Prince Caspian and the talking mouse Reepicheep, the crew is marooned on an island to make repairs to their vessel. And while everyone is enjoying a meal, uh, the group realizes that Eustace has wandered off and has likely gotten lost. The naive young boy has indeed gotten lost, and Eustace has discovered this unexplored valley, this part that has this nearly clear pond, and Eustace is taking a sip of water when suddenly he hears a noise come from behind him. And from the entrance of a nearby cave emerges a dragon. But this dragon was acting strange, at least as far as dragons are concerned, though Eustace didn't know that, because Lewis points out that Eustace didn't read the fantasy books like Edmund and Lucy. But this dragon... Eustace could tell is old and is sad and this dragon walks towards the pond and just as the dragon is about to drink the water it keels over and dies. Initially Eustace uh, remains for a long time but he's worried that the dragon is just playing dead to lure him over but eventually he goes over and checks it out. He goes over and touches it and confirms that it's, it's truly dead, but Eustace doesn't celebrate for long as a thunderstorm breaks out and Eustace is forced to take shelter in the cave where the dragon came from. And it's in the dragon's lair where Eustace finds a lot, great deal of jewels and treasure. And immediately he has dollar signs in his eyes. And Eustace thinks of how he can profit from all that he finds there. And he starts loading his pockets full of treasure that he can carry. All the diamonds. And he eventually slides this large bracelet over his arm and pushes it above his elbow so that it will stay there. He's exhausted, and, and with no sight of the storm letting up, Eustace curls up and falls asleep inside the dragon's lair. When Eustace is woken up in the middle of the night, he has this stinging pain in his arm, and it feels like the bracelet has somehow shrunk on him. And as Eustace shifts his right arm to feel his left, in the moonlight he sees a dragon's claw moving to the right of him. He freezes in fear. It's not, he's not alone, he thinks. There's another dragon. Maybe the dragon had a friend that's now laying beside him. And eventually Eustace works up the courage to run from the cave, and in doing so he realizes there wasn't a second dragon. Rather, he himself is actually transformed into a dragon, and that pain he has that he's feeling right now is that tight bracelet cutting into his skin. He's sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, Lewis says, and he became a dragon himself. At first, Eustace takes pride in becoming a fearsome creature, but then Lewis says, an appalling loneliness came over him. And it quickly dawned on him that he was a monster cut off from everyone, his friends and even those that he didn't really like on the Don Treader. And all Eustace could do was weep because of his newfound isolation, and he desperately wants to change and become human again. And it's in this hour of need that this huge lion appears. And Eustace is petrified of him. He says, you may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked out a lion very easily, he later tells Edmund. But it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid that he would eat me. I was just afraid of it, which you can understand. Eustace said that this lion got up close and it's personal and he looked him straight in the eyes and all he could do was follow him. 
And Eustace said that the lion led him a long way into the mountains, into the wilderness. Once they came to the top of the mountain, there was a garden, (laughs) trees and fruit everywhere. And it's in the middle of this garden that Lewis says is a well. And y'all, if you were here last week, I didn't plan this necessarily ahead of time, but I swear I didn't. But there's a garden, and I love that imagery. God has some strange coincidences. Eustace said that the water was so clear that he thought to himself, if I just get in there and bathe, it could ease the pain of my leg because of the bracelet. But before Eustace could get into the water, the lion said something to him perplexing. He said, I have to undress you. The problem was that no matter how many layers of dragon scales Eustace had, as he tried to peel them off, he still remained a dragon. And so after so many attempts of trying it on his own, the lion then told Eustace, you have to let me undress you. And while Eustace admitted being terrified of the lion's claws, he was just so desperate at this point, he just laid flat on his back and let Aslan work. And the very first tear he made, Eustace said, was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of knowing the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled off the beastly stuff right off, and there I was, smooth and soft, smaller than I had been before. And then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that that pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. And after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me somehow in some other clothes, but in new clothes. It'd be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy, Lewis later writes. But to be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses, and there were still many days when he could be very tiresome. From that on, I shall not care for the... But the cure had began. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesians, you were taught to put off your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to clothe yourself with the new self created according to the likeness of God and true holiness and righteousness. Friends, I think it's in the context of the wilderness that God will undress us of Egypt of the ghosts of Pharaoh that haunt us. We can't remove Egypt from ourselves no matter how hard we scrub. We need the Lion of Judah to do that. But the question is, are we willing to follow him into the wilderness? Because we can't skip right to the promised land. We have to go through the wilderness. It won't be instantaneous, but wandering through the wilderness will be life-giving. The cure will take root in us and gradually set us free to be fully human, to be human again. And hopefully one day, when he comes with trumpet sound, and then may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness and him alone, faultless to stand before the throne, dancing and prancing, saying, I had strings, but now I'm free. There are no strings on me.